Well, good morning, church family. You can remain standing for a moment and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 with me. We are going to, uh, we started Romans last week, and Casey will continue whenever he returns from Utah. Um, But this morning, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and so I'm going to read those now. The word of the Lord. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letters of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and to be read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. As he has made us sufficient to, to be ministers of a new covenant, not of, the spirit, not, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Praise God for his word. You can be seated. If you have ever applied for a job, you may have used a resume to send to your potential new employer. And while the content of resumes is constantly changing, no one can keep up with what's important to be on a resume, one thing that will always be on resumes is a reference. You have a reference. You see, the employer can find out a whole lot about an individual, about where they went to school, about what work experience they might have, but at the end of the day, there's nothing that substitutes for a former co-worker or for a former boss's first-hand testimony about a person's good character, discipline, or maybe lack thereof, right? While the Apostle Paul's and the leaders in the early church did not have Uh, resumes, right? They didn't have MLA format, 12-point font resumes. They did have something of what they might call a letter of recommendation. We see a couple examples of these in the New Testament. In Acts 18, 27, it says, uh, and when he, being Apollos, a Jew, wished to cross over to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. Or you have the case of Phoebe in uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. It says, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe as a servant of the church at Chenaria, uh, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. And so these letters of recommendations from such leaders as the apostles would help the churches know, in a sense, that this individual is legit, right? Today in the church, uh, one pastor might call another pastor about a new member of their church. In the church, we have ordination for pastors or for deacons, offices that are in the church. You might get a seminary degree. And while all those things are good and they, uh, and, and they, and they have their place, at the end of the day, what qualifies an individual for ministry is not what a man might declare about them, but what Christ has done and is doing in them and what he wants to do through them. Right? And so in, in these verses, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 through 6, the answer to the question is found what makes a servant of Christ sufficient for ministry? 
What makes a servant of Christ sufficient for ministry? Now, if you think back on your knowledge about the church in Corinth, uh, you'll remember that Paul had somewhat of a complicated relationship with these believers. And uh, the letter should be understood within the context of the, the, the four letters and three visits that Paul made to Corinth, okay? There was no other church that he visited and that he communicated to as much as the church at Corinth. But the amazing thing is that God in his grace, out of this chaotic church, came so many wonderful things that we can learn from God about the church and about the Christian life about marriage, about the gifts of the Spirit, about the Lord's Supper, right? And so in 2 Corinthians, which is really the fourth letter that was written to the church at Corinth, this letter was a letter that was written to a church after a loving rebuke. And I love that the Apostle Paul, as an eyewitness of Christ himself, never lorded his position as an apostle over believers, but instead, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24, it says that he worked hard, the apostles worked hard for their joy, that they might stand firm in their faith. And they needed a firm faith, that's for sure, because not only did the church have a lot of issues, there were, at the time that he wrote this, false apostles who were coming into the church, misleading the believers, and using the church and their members for their own selfish gain. I'll read 2 Corinthians eleven two through 6. It says, Paul says to them, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be also led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed, or, it, or, or if you receive a different spirit than the one that you received, or if you accept a different gospel than the one that you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the, in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. And so these, these super apostles, so they thought in their own mind, were seeking to discredit Paul by coming along and saying, well, look, if he was really a, an apostle, he wouldn't be suffering like he is. If he was really an apostle, he wouldn't be poor like he is. If he was really an apostle, if he was really an apostle, he would not be such a bad speaker as he is. And so they were proposing somewhat of a first century prosperity gospel in order to benefit their pockets. These verses, so the verses we're going to look at, they find ourselves, we find ourselves, are given within the context of Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry. So let's focus now on verse 1 through 6. Now, in verse 1 through 3, if you're taking notes, we're going to look at the fruit of a sufficient minister. And then in verse 4 through 6, we're going to look at the source of his sufficiency. So the fruit of a sufficient minister and the source of his sufficiency. And in verse 1 through 3, we really see Paul building up to the main idea in verse 4 through 6. He basically says, The Corinthians themselves are the evidence of our competency, but that our competency was given to us by the Lord Jesus himself. 
And so he uses this word picture that's really scattered throughout the Old Testament. It's this, it's this juxtaposing uh, of the ink and the spirit, or if you will, the stone and the flesh or the heart. And the word I want us to hone in here, which I believe is the central idea of what Paul is getting at here, is the word sufficiency. The word sufficiency. He mentions it several times. Uh, it can be translated as uh, being made competent for something. Being made competent. Hekano. And it stems back to the idea of the verse we read in our call to worship this morning in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 16, when Paul poses the question, who is sufficient for these things? And so as good students of the Bible, we need to ask ourselves, who is sufficient for what things, right? What things is he talking about? Well, he says in 2.15, who is sufficient to be the aroma of Christ to God? Who is sufficient to be the conduit, if you will, of grace through the gospel, becoming the fragrance of life to some who believe in the fragrance of death to those who do not? Who is qualified to be a sufficient minister of reconciliation, as he'll say later on? And of course, the implied answer is, for all of us, a resounding no. No one, sorry. No one. No one. No one. All have turned away. No one seeks God. No, not one. And the fact of the matter is, there is only one worthy message that makes sufficient ministers. There are no worthy messengers to be ministers who are sufficient enough to take the gospel. There are only sufficient ones, only sufficient ministers. And so in verse 1 through 3, we see the fruit of a sufficient minister, not a professional one, not a top-notch one, not the best of the best, a perfect one, but a sufficient, competent one. And he he asks, he poses the question, so are we beginning to commend ourselves all over again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And he says, you are our letters of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all, by everyone. And you all show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on a tablet of stone, but on the tablets of the human heart. And so these phony apostles were coming along and they were putting in the ear of these believers, where's his papers? How do you know he's qualified? Right? If you're going to elevate your own position, you have to discredit the other guy first. And that's exactly what they're trying to do here. And so Paul responds by saying essentially, okay, Do we need to reintroduce ourselves again? Hi, my name is Paul. I am an apostle of Christ. So Paul is building his resume here, not for his sake, but for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the message that he is declaring to them in the name of Christ. And he says, look, the evidence that I am a sufficient minister is not in what I can do, but the evidence that I am a sufficient minister is who you are because of what Christ has done. Look no further than the mirror if you want proof of the legitimacy of my ministry among you. And now, this may come as a surprise to you, 
But according to the Bible, a minister will be engaged in ministry. And by ministry, I mean being people who are, who, are, who are creating and cultivating relationships with other people for the sake of their spiritual good and for God's glory. Creating and cultivating relationships with people for their spiritual good and for God's glory. Now, the fact of the matter is, before we came to Christ, we were qualified, sufficient for nothing but hell. That's what we were fit for. And when his grace changes our heart, he sets us apart for the work of the ministry. He equips us for the work of the ministry. He sets us apart for good works by his grace that we should walk in them. And the fact of the matter is the more I seek to know God, the more I read his word, the more I spend time with him in prayer, the more I abide in him, the more it's going to be an outflow for me to want other people in my life to know him. It's just natural. The more I think about other believers, the more I think about the lost around me, their growth, their good, their knowing Christ more and more becomes not only a delight, but also a discipline in my life. You know, a pastor friend of mine recently said something to me, very telling. He said, you know, the older I get, the more I delight in seeing people that I've poured into and their growth and them being used by God than my own. Not that our growth is secondary to that of others, but if we ourselves are growing, we should want to see others growing as well. That should be all of our attitudes. And the message of the gospel was stamped on the Corinthians' heart, and they were stamped on Paul's heart. Now, lest we think that what he is saying is, is that the proof of a competent minister is someone who produces numbers, is someone who is able to secure salvations and baptisms and church membership, let's remember the qualifications that he gave to the pastors in the new church in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. It actually had nothing to do with their success and everything to do with their character and who they were, not what they could do. Because here's the thing, if God has a man's heart, if God has a woman's heart, he's going to have their hands, their feet, their mind, and their affections too. Well, but then you say, I I get what you're saying, and I agree, Mike, but I mean, at the end of the day, isn't Paul kind of bragging about their salvation and the role he played in it? Well, let's look carefully at the word picture he uses in verse 2. He says, you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us. So Christ wrote the letter, and Paul was just the willing messenger. I mean, when you get a letter in the mail from a loved one, after you read it, do you kiss the mailman? It'd be kind of weird. But think about it. Paul was the willing messenger. Christ is the one who gave the letter to Paul to deliver to them. Luke 17, 7 through 10 says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? 
Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all you were commanded, say, we were unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So again, which is better? Which is better? A letter of recommendation for man or a life that has been transformed by the grace of God? And even though Paul was aware that he was competent for this ministry, notice where his confidence lies in verse 4 through 6. He says, This is our confidence, such is our confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claiming having anything come coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Uh, I'm sure none of y'all struggle in your prayer life, but I, I do. And so at the beginning of every year, I try to read a book on prayer. And this year, the book I'm reading on prayer uh, is E.M. Bounds' Power Through Prayer. And in a chapter titled, Our Sufficiency is from God, he says this. The true minister is God-touched, God-enabled, and God-made. It's very simple. A child can understand that. But a true minister is God-touched, God-enabled, and God-made. And I would also add God-confident. If our confidence in ministry ever becomes anything other than the promises of God, we might gain everything we ever wanted. But as Jesus said, but forfeit our soul. You know, from time to time, we we sadly hear of pastors or Christian leaders who fall. Men who may have started off well, abiding in Christ and bearing fruit for him, but they gain some degree of success in their own mind, and all of a sudden they believe that they're God's gift to the world and to the church. And they separate themselves from the flock. They separate themselves from accountability with others. And they either end up burning out or they become puffed up with pride or become succumbed to some other worldly pleasure and fall. And the same can happen with us. And as I was thinking, as I was, I was, I was preparing this morning, I, I was thinking of the fact that maybe one of the worst things that God could ever do for any of us, a, a pastor, a, a deacon, a mom, a dad, a Sunday school teacher, is to show us just how fruitful we are. A wise man once told me that in ministry, God's going to hide a lot of the fruit from you, if for no other reason to just keep you humble and dependent on him. The same can happen to us. And then we might feel like we don't need him anymore and might rely on our gifts instead of the giver. And I love how the Bible is so consistent in everything that it says. And something that we see as an example all throughout Scripture is that God uses the humble and the contrite in spirit, those who tremble at his word, as it says in Isaiah 66 too. Remember Moses, Exodus 3, 7 through 12. It says, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I will have all, and I have also seen the oppression um, with which the Egyptians have been oppressing them. Come, and I will send to you Pharaoh, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring out my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? 
and to bring the children of Israel up out. Who is sufficient for these things? And God says to him, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you, for that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, they shall serve the Lord your God on this mountain. God will make you sufficient for ministry. Judges 6, 11 through 24, God calls Gideon to save Israel. And he says, oh, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Who is sufficient for these things? Not me. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you will strike the Midians as one man. The Lord God will make you sufficient. Isaiah 6, 5, before God calls Isaiah, he reveals to him just how holy he is three times. And Isaiah says, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among the midst of people of unclean lips for my eye has seen the glory of the Lord of hosts. Who is sufficient for these things? Jeremiah 4 Four through ten, or one, four through ten. And now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And then I said, Ah, oh, ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only of youth. Who is sufficient for these things? But the Lord said to him, Do not say I am only a youth, for to you, uh, for to you, all who I am sending you, you shall go, and whatever I say, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. The Lord God will make you sufficient. You see, if it were up to us, if it were up to us, left to ourselves, we would always choose the best. We would always choose the brightest. We would always choose the Saul's, right? But when we look at God's word, when we look at God's standards, we see that the God-made man, the God-chosen man, is a man who says, I am not worthy, yes, I know, but Christ died for me, I believe it so, so in turn I give my life, my all, to follow Christ wherever he calls. You know, two things really fascinated me about this passage when studying it. One was, well, two of them had to do with words. The first word is the word sufficient, which really means competent or adequate for ministry. We've been talking about that. But the second word is the word minister. He calls himself a minister. Now remember, he's defending his apostolic ministry. Why wouldn't he say, I am a sufficient apostle of the new covenant ministry? Instead, he says, I am a, we are a sufficient minister of the new covenant. And I think that was for a, perfect, a purpose. The word uh, minister in verse 6, is the word diakonos. And most of the time in the Bible, we translate that word servant. It's actually where we, we get the, the word deacon from, diakonos. And I'm kind of a nerd, and words interest me, so I looked into it, and when, when, you, when, you, put the, when, you, when you break the, the word diakonos in half, you get two words. The first part is dia, which means to th- something thoroughly, thoroughly, and then kanos, which is the word for dust. And so it means to thoroughly dust. So there's really two word pictures that we could get out of this. The first one is the idea of kicking up dust, okay? And it's a picture of running to meet a need, like a roadrunner Christian, right? But not running from something, but running to meet a need. You see a need, and you kick up dust to meet it. The second word picture that we could get out of this, to thoroughly dust, 
is to be completely covered in dust. And I immediately thought about Jesus after he washed the disciples' feet, before he took the Lord's Supper, he must have been filthy. He must have been covered in dust. And I think Paul carefully uses the word minister of a new covenant and not apostle of a new covenant, not only to show us that the new covenant, as Peter says, brings with it all sorts of varied service, all kinds of service, but also to show us that, that the, the word minister is not, is not only for apostles or for pastors or for deacons. It's for everyone who names the name of Christ. Every Christian, every parent, every student, every single, you play a part in the body of Christ and you are a minister. When a Marine graduates from boot camp and from infantry school, they inevitably are going to learn the phrase, every Marine a rifleman. And in boot camp, they tear you down so that they can build you back up. And every Marine, no matter what his job in the Marine Corps ends up being, is a rifleman first, is a warrior, is a defender of America. And now yeah, they all have different roles, but a private who is a cook has been made a sufficient rifleman just like a 40-year three-star general has. But you say, oh, you know, I don't have a degree in counseling. I can't help this person in this situation. Do you have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead living in you? Or maybe, you know what, maybe Paul has a little bit more of the Holy Spirit than you. You know, maybe Casey and Blake, maybe, maybe they have a little bit more of the Holy Spirit than you. No. Do you know the Word of God? Are you abiding in the Word? Do you know the truth of the Word of God? Are you saturated in the Word? Are you living by the Spirit? You're a sufficient minister for that situation. I don't think it's an accident. God put you in their life. Has God ever comforted you in an affliction? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. The source of our sufficiency, the source of a sufficient minister, the sufficiency is in Christ. It's in Christ. And the banner... The banner under which we do this ministry, he says, is the new covenant. Lest we think that this is, that, that this is our life, that these are our, this is our family, that this is our church, that this is our money, our job. He says all of this is under the heading of the new covenant. Paul reminds him, them and he reminds himself that this is new covenant ministry. And though we use the word covenant a lot, I think it's good that we remind ourselves of what it means. Um, you know, in fact, if, if you recall, uh, our, our Bibles are, whole, are, are set up around this idea of two covenants. The word testament means covenant. So the Old Testament, that's the Old Covenant. The New Testament, that's the New Covenant. And J.I. Packer uh, says that a covenant in Scripture is 
a solemn agreement that binds two parties to each other in a permanent, defined relationship with specific promises, claims, and obligations on both sides. Now, that's a mouthful, but you just think about the marriage covenant, right? That's an agreement that two people enter into before God, and you have specific pledges for one another. And God made Adam and Eve, he made, him, uh, he made them in his image, he placed them in the garden to work it, and they had one rule, right? And then after the fall, with God's people, you had like 600-something rules, right? Sins complicates things, right? And so, uh, and so, 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 but since they obeyed, and they disobeyed, and they rebelled against God, humanity has always and consistently failed to uphold their end of the bargain, when it comes to God and his covenants. And that is why Paul says that the letter, meaning the law, kills. It kills. It cannot bring life. God's law is flawless. It's perfect. God's law reflects his holy character and his expectations of his creation. There is nothing wrong with the law. The problem is what it exposes in me. In Romans 7, 10, and 11, it says, The very commandment that uh, promised life proved death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. James says that the law is like a mirror. It shows us our sin, and it can do nothing but seal our judgment. And we see that played out all throughout the Old Testament, right, in Israel's history. That God loved them, he chose them, he gave them a wonderful place to live, and he gave them his written law. He wrote it on stone with his finger through Moses, and he gave it to them. The law was written down for Israel to know and to follow when they entered into the promised land. The kings, as a matter of fact, were required to write out a copy of the law and always keep it with them. And during Jesus' earthly ministry, he would often say things like, It is what? It is written. When he was tempted in the wilderness, he said, it is written. And one thing that was written under the old covenant was this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke... Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law not on something that is written, but I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people, and no longer one shall teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their sins, and I will, and I will remember them no more. The only hope for humanity was that God in his mercy might do for me what I can't do for myself and what you can't do for yourself. That is to pay the penalty of my sin, to forgive me and to give me new and eternal life. And God was not obligated to that out of his mercy, out of the abundance of his mercy and his love and his grace and his justice, 
He did that. He saved us, not because of the works done by righteousness, as Titus 3 says, but according to his own mercy by the washing, the regeneration, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so now, Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the new covenant, the new covenant was initiated by God. It was secured through Jesus's sinless life, his death and his resurrection You and I can enter into this covenant through repentance and faith. And the fact is, we live out the realities in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we serve Him as sufficient ministers in His power until He returns. And now we're back to the question that we had again in the cult of worship read. Who is sufficient for these things, for these realities? No one. And that's, what it makes, and that's what makes the gospel so beautiful and so, so, such good news. That the unworthy are made worthy, that the filthy are made clean, and that my evil desires can be traded for holy ones. And that death is swallowed up by life. And so this week, my encouragement to you, as you go about the ministry that God has whether you're a mother and that's in the home, whether you're serving in this church in some way, whether you're at work, contributing to society, providing for your family, that's a ministry. Whether you're a pastor, parent, go about your ministry in his grace, in his grace. I'll read this first and then we'll pray. 2 Corinthians 2, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10 says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so we can be okay, and we can even boast in our weakness. It says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. That is why, For Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecution and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We try to live in our own strength. We try to live in our own strength most of the time. But this week, live in the strength of God's grace. Father, we do admit that many times we we try to go about life Without thought of you, we, we, we try really hard, but we often fail. And so, Father God, I ask that you would remind us this week that when we are weak, it's only then that we're qualified to be strong. And I just pray for every man, woman, boy, child in here now, Lord, that if they don't know you, that if they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you would draw them unto yourself, that you would show them their sin 
and their need for you, their brokenness, their inability to do anything good, that they don't have anything good in their life, God, unless they have you, and that you would save them, that they would call upon your name, Lord. Lord, strengthen us this week. Give us wisdom. We love you and we praise you, Jesus. It's in your name. Amen.